Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hi, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but I'm just unhooking myself from a device that over the last half an hour has delivered the equivalent of 180 perfect pelvic floor contractions. And let me tell you, Emily, that's quite intense. As, as I heard the words pelvic floor contractions, I started doing them. Presumably everybody listening has started doing them as well. Except how do you know if you're doing it right? And why are we even doing them? We are desperately triggered by the phrase pelvic floor, but we don't have a proper grasp on what they do or why they're not behaving. All we know is that our pelvic floors aren't strong enough whether it's because we're reluctant to go on trampolines, hold on for dear life when we sneeze, or worry that we're not enough when it comes to sex. I was so sad to learn that 50% of women worry about laughing in public because of leaks. Isn't that awful? Pelvic floor panic is literally dimming our joy. Now, we all talk about pelvic floors, but do we really? One in three women suffer bladder weakness in the UK. That makes it more common than hay fever. And of that 30%, one in five have been suffering for over seven years. I mean, what's wrong with us? What the hell are we doing? Enough with the conspiracy of silence. Which is why we are delighted that this podcast is brought to you by Innovo, a pelvic floor trainer made by women for women with 87% efficacy. And here's how it works. You pull on some shorts with built-in sensors, you switch it on, it recruits all the relevant muscles and you spend 30 minutes relaxing while your pelvic floor is put through its paces by its own personal trainer. So here's what a stronger pelvic floor is going to do for you. It's going to give you stronger bladder control so that trampoline will quake at the sight of you walking towards it. It's going to give you increased sensitivity during sex. Can't argue with that. It's going to give you improved posture. So maybe we'll no longer look like croissants from the side. And it's going to give you better core strength because the pelvic floor is the canopy that supports your entire core. Innovo can help you turn your pelvic floor from your nemesis into your superpower. Hi, I'm Emily and I'm absolutely fine, but I took the skin off my finger, zipping up my jeans. And I feel like one, is there no end to my dereliction in the sense that either I'm falling apart or I can't actually, I'm so incapable these days that I can't actually like zip up a pair of jeans. And obviously I should just be in elasticated waistbands forever. Um, but also it really hurt. <laughs> Don't you find though at the moment that micro injury lies in wait everywhere? I'm always just hurting myself a bit. Yes, I mean, we were on the phone the other day and I, I said to you, I'm sorry, I'm carrying laundry and I'm going down the stairs and I'm going to do this really slowly. 
because I just don't want to hurt myself any more than is necessary. Do you think it's because we're, we're scattered or do you think it's the whiff of frailty? Oh, stop the whiff of frailty. That's just not a very good odour of frailty. Fucking hell. I'm going to take death as my theme <laughs> and I'm going to say, I'm Annabelle, I'm absolutely fine, but my cat, Barry who died two weeks ago, his ashes are being sent over this morning and in a, in, a, in a little casket. And I don't know whether to like slide them under the bed and then worry about them in, I mean, let's face it, 20 years, or to create a sort of a little shrine and, you know, make it a thing. You know, it, it's been a very bizarre couple of weeks around the Barry thing. It was my birthday a couple of days ago. And my best friend who gave me Barry for my birthday gave me a locket. And in the locket is a tiny, perfect picture of Barry which first made me cry and then made me start laughing because, I mean, I'm, I'm a single mother and I thought about going on a date and someone saying, oh, <laughs> what's that in your locket? Me saying, oh, it's my dead cat. <laughs> wait wait so, till you put the ashes in there as well. <laughs> yes, it's my dead cat and his accompanying ashes and no, I will never have sex again. Um, but it's all right because Emily and I are so delighted today to welcome writer Lucy Mangan to the podcast. Yay. You will inevitably have read her TV column in The Guardian, nodded in vehement recognition at her columns in Weekend and Stylist about feminism and the female load. And now, thrillingly, she's written her first novel, a frank and fizzy look at family life. It's funny with sharp corners that you bump into and go, ouch, yes, that's me. It's called, Are We Having Fun Yet? Are you having fun yet, Lucy Mangan? How are you? I'm absolutely fine, as I believe the saying goes, but I've got the cold and PMT and I could kill everyone. It's a good job I'm not going out at any point this week or indeed possibly ever again because people are going to get it. Just, and not in a fun way. I can't, no, never in a fun way. I, I don't even think of that as a sexual, potentially sexual phrase anymore. You know? I love, one of the things I loved about your book, which I loved a lot, was the main character's absolute hostility to going out on almost every level. And the, the just sort of permanent, no, I don't think we should do that as a sort of just a general default. decision. Yes, yes exactly. I and this was all written that. before pandemic, I'd like to point out. You know, this is absolutely how it should be and how it is in this house. I mean, the going out thing, it's just, I mean, something's got to give and, it's, and that's one of the things that's got to give, isn't it? I mean, going out feels like a terrible ordeal. I start to worry about it days before and then I won't sleep the night before because who sleeps? And then if I manage to make it out after the terrible psychodrama of staring at my wardrobe, opening the cupboard and staring at these sort of medieval robes that hang there and seem to have nothing to do with the person I am or how I live... When I get there, I'm just, you know, just desperate to leave. So then I can't engage with anybody. So it makes you feel even more isolated. The going out conundrum. Is there a solution? I know you just stand there sort of ballasted with your own resentment and contempt, don't you? (laughs) Yes, and either it's a night where you can't drink because you've got to drive or you've got to get up or something. Or, you know, if it's a night where you drink. Because you're 47, you know. Because you're 47 and the two-day hangover. It's and you said in your it. book, and it's absolutely true, just at the point in our lives when we really, really need to be able to drink, our bodies stop metabolising <laughs> it and it becomes... Can I just say that I, when you were talking about staring in front of your wardrobe looking at medieval robes, and I thought, maybe that is what I need in my wardrobe to cheer it up. Some, Some medieval, medieval robes. robes. <laughs> yes. Come, come <laughs> round and plunder. Plunder and pillage. What is it with the power suits? that I have, I obviously am not wearing and haven't worn for two years. You definitely years, went through you... a sort of lady gallerist slash architect phase, didn't you? Exactly. And forget, and no wonder they look weird. And actually, if, if I actually opened and saw a medieval kind of 
floor length thing I might actually put it on <laughs> one of the wonderful things that we loved about your book is it's so articulate and funny and angry about the injustice and and sort of inequality of the female load even in privileged situations where there's a house over your head and there are fish fingers in the fridge what led you to really want to you know write something big around that I just turned out I had a lot to say and and the older you get the more the unfairness becomes obvious to you and and actually the the thing I think I was not expecting was that as the children get older I've only got one child but as, as children get older it becomes more laborious rather than less and the 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 load becomes more and more unfair because suddenly who's it's one thing to be doing the breastfeeding or the bulk of that kind of thing when you're the only one really that could do it and everyone's just in this kind of war and doing the best they can it's quite another I I find when they're seven eight nine ten and suddenly you're the one still doing all the washing and the homework and the cooking and the where are you where are you where's the other half of this (laughs) equation because you've built up that knowledge over time and you are the only one on top of the situation. You are the only you are the centre of so many spiders webs uh, that you can't just say, right, I'm off for the day. I had this <laughs> I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with a male friend of mine, which you really shouldn't bother. But he's a very, very, <laughs> very nice guy. And, and as my as my female friend said, only really 12 percent male. <laughs> and so I thought, well, so I was venting a bit of steam about how I'd love a day off, but, you know, I and I was out having a drink with him, but I had to go early because I was having to do pick-up instead of my husband, blah, 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 blah. And he said, he said, why don't you just leave for the day? He said, that's what I used to do. Um, when it all got too much and too busy, you know, you just go off to St Leonard's by the sea. And when they ring, you say, I can't. I'm in St Leonard's by the sea. And I was like, oh, my God, the shit that would rain down on me. <laughs> And everyone else's lives, if I tried that. And it just, this, this gulf opened up between us and we just stared at each other across the abyss as me, you know, crying into my beer and also wanted to kick him in the nuts as well. Um, <laughs> but on it goes, I mean, you know. It, on it goes and we end up in these situations, you know, where where we were talking earlier about sometimes your life sends you sort of warning flares. What, that you might end up too tired or too anxious or, you know, too angry. And the trouble with when you're carrying it all is you sit in a firework display of warning flares without really many options or yeah. unless, unless you were to do something incredibly radical, which not many of us have got the stomach for. Yes. What, what do you do? What are you going to do? How have you got time to clear cut your... What you need to do is clear cut your entire life. So your family dynamics, your marital dynamics your temperament, your early training, everything, 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 to change things in any meaningful way would have to be cut down and you'd have to let the forest slowly grow again without interference. Well, you know, good luck with that. So instead what you do is firefighting every day and taking a valley match every now and again to create a sort of artificial oasis of peace <laughs> and get four hours of solitude crammed into one. Or we go for a swim. A swim. Or- a swim. I mean, I know, I know exactly a swim. And even actually, I'm a swimmer. I like to think of myself as a swimmer. But actually now, with the way that everything is, the idea of going for a swim stresses me out almost as much as not going for a swim. So I'm just going to not go for a swim. I mean, there you go. 
because even the time it takes to get to the pool and just get changed and then to be wet and oh just I can't yeah but I mean that's and I even though I know it's self-care and even though there are warning flares shooting around me violently, I'm still not going to go for a swim. I know. It's hard to know what, what options you have. And I think combined with the... You can, you can get very angry. I mean, in terms of the, the feminism in your book, mm. I mean, you know, you've been a feminist for as long as I've been reading you. Has your attitude evolved and changed as your life as a woman has changed? Well, I think as with every other aspect of life, I've become more impatient and more pragmatic about it. I'm like... Do I care about your theories anymore? Do I want to read, you know, the ins and outs? No, I'd like the same money as he's being paid, please. I want free childcare or subsidised childcare. I want everyone to, you know, nut up and do their bit. I find myself much less interested in the theory or even even in the ideals. What we're aiming for, I'll, I will take a small improvement now over a big improvement later because I think, in, increasingly, I think that's... That's how proper gains are made. And I think, as I got older, also economics more than anything is the thing that will free women because I've become increasingly aware that I feel, you know, banjaxed most of the time and I've got every possible advantage, like, you know, we all have, I'd say. Um, I've got plenty of money. I've got a roof over my head. I don't have to worry about buying food and all the rest of it. And if disaster hits, like our car breaking down or somebody dying, we can cope. You know, we've got all that slack in the system. And it's still quite oppressive but money solves a lot of oppression you know so more and more I think equal pay equal use of and access to childcare, all that kind of thing free contraception all of that good stuff is the basic answer it's not the whole answer but it's absolutely the first plank of what you need yeah and of course once you once you realize once you sort of come to that conclusion then it's even more infuriating that it isn't there. Yeah, because you know I mean? it's so basic and it's so exactly simple in a way, and it, it's I suppose it's because it's all all that's stopping it is the lack of political will, because it, it wouldn't cost much and it would overall benefits economically benefit society. So why isn't it being a, because it's only women, and women are, are picking up the slack. So you know the powers that be are really, really not literally and metaphorically invested in it. No, and then you look at what's happening in Texas and, and Afghanistan and you're just fucking astounded that in unbelievably distressing, appalling ways and also in practical ways that we're just talking about, we're still having this conversation. Yes, we're still so near the beginning of everything and it's still yeah. all so fragile. You know? I should put my medieval robes on. You should. Frankly, that's <laughs> where we're living. And get my flail. Yeah. I found, we found out recently that those, those sticks with swinging spi- spiky <laughs> balls on the ends are called flails. And frankly, it would be quite useful. You should come to me. I'm well up on medieval terminology. I knew that was a flail. Come on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Teaching my grandmother to oh. suck it. I know. I feel like you would be dangerous with a flail today, Lucy I would. Morgan. I would. <laughs> particularly today. Step away like to the side. I'd like to think I'd be dangerous with a flail on any day, but particularly today. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't get the medieval robes because that's what the patriarchy want me to do, right? <laughs> Don't know. I mean, what would happen if women came together to do something dangerous and all went to St. Leonard's on Sea for yeah. the day? You know, you just, you just wonder if, 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 how much of it you say is volume and how much of it is action. Mm. I don't know, and, I'm, and now I'm too tired to do anything. So I <laughs> That's their plan. That's their plan. their plan. They get us knackered enough, we can't do anything. But also, you know, beyond um, the anger, which in your book comes across as, as, as sharp and shiny and also very funny, 
I think there is for, for a lot of women, you know, there's, there's a lot of grief as well about roads that you can't take, things that you can't do, the person you don't have the energy to be. Don't you think? Yes, it's a very strange realisation that much of life seems to be about avenues shutting down in a way that you never thought it would be, you never kind of considered, and in a way it really doesn't seem to be for men. I don't see any any husbands or partners or male men of my acquaintance experiencing any kind of frustration on that score because they can still all, if they want to, get up and take the day off, the week off, change jobs probably without having to make enormous alternative childcare arrangements because they found this one job that actually allows the hours from this to this and that on Wednesdays and Friday and now and then would grandma be able to do that if she they would just go mm, don't like this job we'll find a better job and that would you know they just you just have to shift yourself around to the 90 degrees or whatever it would be also they don't have any headlines saying are men too old to wear jeans <laughs> are men too old to wear moisture or you know how to combat crow's feet yes. and how to look younger although you know, i would like uh, to say yes men can be too old to wear jeans uh, <laughs> go out with my flail and point this out today <laughs> there was i mean definitely you know because because lockdown you know as we all know was where you know, women were thrown under the bus we're back in the 50s and i i, I noticed with um married friends of mine who would be you know getting up at four in the morning to try and do half a day's work before starting to homeschool their kids and all of that shit that was going on and the men would walk into their home office at 8am and shut the door there was a sort of fetishization around men's work and they were probably sitting in there on amazon or watching porn or playing a game but then they would re-emerge when you know it, it was all done you write in your book about the husband coming home when everything is over yeah that's that's the trick really and that's why the only way to, that it works is to go to St. Leonard's on sea for the day and actually remove your... You know, you need to be geographically unavailable to get away with anything. But for, for men, that, that can constitute closing a door and everyone is like, oh, he's working. Um, and that's enough. But for women, I suggest, you know, you have to move counties <laughs> and, have, and have some parlous transport links between them as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, that's not hard. There's also this brilliant way that the husband in your book come when he does actually come back and do something, he overcomplicates it to to kind of such a mass degree that it just becomes almost futile to ask, which again is another trick, right? Yes, this is making making the game not worth the candle is very valuable life lesson. All those awful things like when he turns around to her and he says, the dishwasher's making a, a, a funny noise. You, you know, you better, you better call the plumber. We'd, we'd better or, or, call or, or, the plumber. Or the, or, or the cat's tearing its own hair out, you know. Yeah, we'd better call the vet. Yeah. <laughs> and the, marital... the next day, still haven't called the vet. Plumber hasn't arrived. He hasn't done anything. It's the marital, it it's the marital we. It means you do it. Not like the royal we. No, it means you do it, not I. Yeah. But it, it's so interesting because as girls, we're so, you know, when we grow up, we're told to be, we, I mean, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here or whatever, but... You know, it's sort of like, be good, do all your tasks, yes. <laughs> everything that you're supposed to do, go through life, you know, achieve, achieve, all whilst being pleasant, polite and kind and, and thoughtful and whatever. I mean, you know, we need to be told that St. Leonard's is an option, <laughs> that whatever the game and the candle that you said is also an option. We need to be, well, also, you know, we need to be taught at, at root level. Yes, but also dismantle this myth that if you do everything right, you'll be rewarded. Yes. Because yes. you won't. Yes. There's something wrong with the fact that only half the population is taught always work to your maximum only ever ask for help when it's absolutely necessary um, and always be at capacity uh, and that's the way the world will work most smoothly 
And it would if the whole population were being taught that because you've got the other half of the population being taught, do the minimum you can, always draw in other people to help you along the way as much as possible, save your energy, save your resources, uh, so you've got plenty left in the tank, brackets for yourself. And so that overall that doesn't work. That's an extremely unfair setup. But you don't notice that till it's too late. <laughs> yeah, but that's because it's it's this it's this sinister osmosis that you know, they could be they'll be they'll be sitting there in their co-ed school, all being set the same task, and yet everything in the universe that is speaking to them is giving them different messages. It's so embedded as to become invisible as well. It, you know, it's it's very hard to dismantle when it's it's in the very air you breathe. It's in your. I mean, my mother's the most independent small f feminist i don't think she's ever used the word but feminist woman you ever meet but we were still brought up as she was to take on everything you can you know being the the version of independence women are sold is act on your own don't ask anyone for help and that extends to the home life as well and the children the the, the version of power that i think a lot of our generation generation were were sold when we were at school was the idea that suddenly we could have it all we were going to have it all and what no one said was, if you want to have it all, you have to do it all. Everything about everything you touch will be your responsibility. Yeah. Even if it's a shared Again, project. Again, that, that was the phrase that kind of depended and, and encapsulated the unfair division of labour, I suppose. I mean, you can have it all, brackets. That's only true if men start doing their fair share. Otherwise, you can't. You know, it's basic maths. The greater into the less won't go. So you cannot have a full-time job and you cannot be a full-time mother. So you're going to have to compromise. You cannot have it all, and that was the that was the implied definition of all that you could have both those things without um, compromising on either. And that's absolute bollocks. Nobody can fit two solids into one two equal sized solids into one frame. So it was an absolute lie from the beginning. Given that nobody was telling men at the same time, you can't have it all. All right, because things have got to change. Nobody said that. Still, people still aren't saying that. We're, gradu- no, we're gradually they're... nudging men as well. Yeah, be really actually. It's really nice to know your kids and have input into family life and be present. And they're being nudged into this idea of, a, instead of, you know, telling them what it's, what's really necessary and what it's really... No, you need to be doing 50% of the work because they're 50% your kids. It's 50% your home. It's 50%, no, it's 90% your shit stains on the toilet bowl. So time for the toilet fairy to retire. Yeah, maybe stop referring to spending time with your kids as babysitting. Babysitting. That would be a good start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an absolute killer, isn't Get it? out the flail. <laughs> out Do not come. pass go. I mean, I read, a, I read a great, I'm going to say I read a great tweet, but I am going to say that out loud uh, the other day that said, you know, the 40-hour week was designed for people who had someone at home doing all the other stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, so if you feel like you're failing, it's because it's not supposed yeah. to be that way. It's because of maths. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it is actual maths. I also, I, I, I was looking back at some of your old columns and I, I found one I'd loved about feminism and how when you were sort of 14 and looking at uh, reading an interview with Claudia Schiffer and she was like oh, don't worry I'm not perfect I don't know if that's her accent but anyway um, it's, it's, it's essence of Claudia Schiffer it's, it's good yes yeah. of Claudia Schiffer that's coming at you um, you know and but I have a slightly wonky hairline <laughs> and you were like oh Hold on. Hold the game on is rigged, I thought. The game Something's is wrong here. That is her imperfection. I love that. And it's so true. It's and that's like, being sold to girls to give them confidence. Yeah, yeah. that's the I mean, best you get. <laughs> that's the, exactly. The best you get is her wonky hairline. And it does actually, it's really interesting 
you know, now that we're older and we give many, many less fucks and we talk about, it's not our, only our wonky hairlines, our wonky brains and our wonky everything that we, we're talking about. And I'm hoping that, you know, the younger generations are not under the same pressure, but we were under a huge amount of pressure at that particular juncture, I think. But also, I really believed as a maybe, I don't want, 19-year-old or whatever, that I was experiencing true liberation. <laughs> do you know Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm Problem here and I'm... sold. <laughs> I, I pretty much, I mean, what a... I was about to say a very bad word. What a fool. Um, <laughs> what a fool. Yeah, I thought, right, yeah, yeah. Okay, so off, off I'm going to kind of march into the future. And th- the job is done as a, you know, as a, as a teenager. I mean, my God, I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I was sort of brainwashed. Yeah, and also, but, uh, you know, it's easy to forget that things are, well, at least until very recently, things have been getting better. You know, we are more, I was going to say more privileged, more equal, more rightfully equal than we've ever been before. Uh, again, as you say, if we don't live in Texas or Afghanistan. So, you know, there are reasons for, for hope and confidence and all that kind of thing. But no room for complacency, because look what happens when you take your eye off the ball. Yeah, It all goes exactly very handmaid's tale very quickly, it turns out. Yes. Yeah, so quickly. I agree. It's like naught to 60 in the, what, naught to negative 60 or whatever. It's less than a decade this stuff all takes to reverse, you know, 50 years of fight or law. Or, um, and when you were writing the book, did it make you, um, did it make you angrier to get all this out? <laughs> or did it, was it sort of cathartic? What, what state you, was, were you in was, after a day of writing when you went to have a gin and tonic with your husband? It was much less cathartic than I'd hoped, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, and the only good thing really was that uh, any time I got stuck in writing, I'd just have to go and live for another 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and then so just true. transcribe another another few events. Then this happens. And then, yes. you know, never guess what the fuck happened then. How <laughs> close is the husband in the book to your husband? Richard's a much more basic model. You know, he's he's much he's that he's a little bit more obtuse. He's a little bit more head in the clouds. My husband's always been very good with the child. I don't know how he'd fare if we had two. I think that might actually tip him over the edge. <laughs> and he's very. Although I tried, to, I tried to give Richard this. My husband's very good with me emotionally. He's quite emotionally intelligent, um, which I didn't give Richard all of, but he's got some of it. But the stuff about, you know, things like Richard coming into the kitchen and going, where are my, where are my keys, wallet, travel card, pants, whatever? And you think to yourself, they're in plain view. If he swivels his eyeballs, I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> and he, you know, he goes raging around the place because the, the keys are to the, at the edge of the table where he can't see them because he left them in the centre of the table. And it's that kind of thing was more or less lifted from life. <laughs> but also, that's also about, to me, the hypervigilance that we have, where you would have known where the keys, the wallet, the car keys and everything were, because with our bat-like squeaks, it's why one of the reasons we're so tired. It's not just because we're physically running around, it's because we're mentally running around. We just know. It's, just it's, know. It's, it, yeah. yeah. And also to the point that you actually know he's going to come downstairs and ask that because you know that the children moved the stuff thing and you didn't bother putting it back because you thought oh, I'll just tell him later on and it you know back it goes and kind of it's this kind of recursive thinking you're always doing and you're planning ahead so you're thinking in seven dimensions the whole time I mean I'm exhausted I don't run around that much I sit and type is most of my day the house is a shithole so I don't clean but physically I'm, I'm just tired because you know you get tired about 40 and then you just get sleepier and sleepier until the sweet release of death as far as I can see but <laughs> mentally mentally I'm exhausted because I have no room for just ordinary cheerful or boring thoughts because I'm always planning eight steps ahead 
in seven dimensions and I can't even do that maths but that's a lot of thinking yeah yes and also it makes it very very hard impossible when everyone says just be in the present (laughs) I mean that's that's not gonna happen that's not um the only time listeners I wish you could see Lucy's face right now (laughs) absolute disgust (laughs) Um, of course, what you do talk about, which is what a lot of us have and rely on, is the idea of our coven. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us a bit about the, the about the coven? Well, it's just your your three or four best friends that you can just ring up and go. You don't believe what the twat's done today, or you're not believe the kids are. I'm going to kill them. I'm walking. You know, I'm walking out to the hills now, and I'm not coming back. And they go, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. What's and they just you know they just shrug and go, yeah, what's happened. There's often wine, isn't there? If you there's ever get face to face, if you ever manage to leave the house, there's often a lot of wine. Yes, and it's a it's a cliche, and I, and we've got, people are always like, oh, we're talking about wine. I'm like, yeah, it's true, and I'd like you to ask why women, as soon as they leave the house, have to, you know, hit the hit the booze in order to get any <laughs> semblance of relaxation into their tiny bit of free time, because if you just sat there and you know, didn't drink. It wouldn't be enough. The drinking is forcible relaxation because we haven't got time to do it properly. Yeah, absolutely. It's not that like you can go on a, on, a, on, a, on a sort of, you know, month-long ashram. I remember because when I was you know, drinking quite a lot, I've often drunk quite a lot in my life, and, and a therapist said, a shrink said, very, very fiercely, why do you feel the need to not be present? And I was like, why the <laughs> fuck do you think I'm even here? <laughs> I mean, you know, it does that. It can take you out of the drudge and give you a little bit of a mini holiday. But then there's also the realisation that, you know, and it's woven into the title of it, but are we having fun yet? Is someone said to me the other day, something very bad had happened to them. And she said, you know, all this sort of drudge and exhaustion, this is the fun bit. This is the good bit. And then you really wonder, don't you? I mean, it's true. And then for five minutes you go, oh, what a joy to pick up the laundry and, you know, this is the good bit, this is the good bit. But, you know, it's hard to hang on to the good feelings. Yeah, because they're wrong. I mean, that's, you know, objectively not a good, <laughs> a good start. You're going to tell yourself that all your life, you know, whatever gets you through the day, but um, no. no. Um, and so uh, how come you decide to write a novel after all these years as a, as a famous columnist who we've all been reading all over the place? What, what planted the seed? Um, I knew, what made you think you'd have the time <laughs> or the energy? Well, what were you thinking? Well, that's why it's, that's why it's a diary, basically, because you could write a diary <laughs> in chunks, and if you've not no time, you do the little chunks and the one-liners and the EV little EV scenes or whatever. And if you've got more time, you do the bigger set pieces or you do the emotional bits. Because the, <laughs> the first draft I sent into my agents, uh, I was quite pleased with, you know and uh, got it all done, got it out of the way, off, off, my, off my desk. And they sent it back going, oh, it's very good, it's very funny, uh, it's very, yeah, it's fine. Um, you're going to have to have put some feelings into it. <laughs> and I was like, I don't have time for that nonsense. <laughs> Fuck the feelings. What? what? Well, so, well, you know, you're going to have to put in something about loving or, or, you know, feelings towards your husband and your children. And, you know, make, make make her live as a character. I was like, I don't live like that as a person. They were like, it doesn't matter. As a character, you know, you're you're dead inside. As a character, we need to we need to root for her. And you're going to have to, you know, fake fake some feelings. So I had to go back. I mean, early my, on, oh, early on, there is stuff. there is very early in the, in, the, in the book, there is a sort of love letter. There's a sort of mini but intense love letter to the cat. Oh, yeah. Well, that was easy. That was the first bit. That's how I broke myself in. <laughs> the, the world of, of inner emotion. 
It's funny, isn't it? Because as a columnist and, you know, often writing polemics and all sorts of things, actually you're writing about feelings all the time. But having, I suppose, to create some distance. Mm. So it's a, it's, a different, it's a different thing to inhabit the feelings. Yeah, and also for, for all that it's very realistic and, and most of it, or a lot of it, is drawn from life, you are still making stuff up. You are still having to shape that into believable fictional situations you know you are having to set it in the home you've already created with the characters you've already created and adapt all this and introduce Mrs Bradley the next door neighbour even though you haven't had a next door neighbour um, since you moved to London and all that kind of thing so it is fiction's weird like that and also you've got so much more time to and space that you find yourself just having to invent things because you can suddenly what well, rather than writing rather than writing words, you're words writing 70,000 words yeah um, now you're a voracious reader what are you reading at the moment what should we be reading less reading and more staring at the wall at the moment honestly <laughs> than I've ever done before even at the height of the pandemic I wasn't this bad I don't know I think it's that's kind of once the emergencies peak of the emergencies over you know how you then that's when you go oh fuck and the adrenaline I think well I'm I think that that's stage. I think that we've all we been all slightly are. sort of slightly sort of thrumming with anxiety and when that adrenaline that anxiety filled adrenaline left our bodies we all just you know fell over i didn't read a book for about six months i just couldn't all i could do was watch married at first sight australia yeah um i say i rewatch unbreakable kimmy schmidt and comedies and that's that's it the other thing is, is of course i have no memory so although i know <laughs> and i know my book list is in the other room <laughs> i could go and give you several recommendations from there um <laughs> i cannot remember the last good book i read um, Can you remember any good books you've read? <laughs> uh, that's, that's a question. No, I would, I would recommend um, for times like this. I, I mean, I turn to, to thrillers and, you know, basically people solving problems competently. And for that, I'd recommend you know, Louise Candlish, Harriet Tice, or Jane Casey, um, amazing Irish writer of thrillers. What underpins quite a lot of your book is this, it's a, it's a, it's a modern book, but this old-fashioned idea of duty you know, all the stuff that we're meant to do, the parents, the rush hour of life, I think maybe is where that duty really, really kicks in. And, and as Emily always says, you know, how do we negotiate the rush hour of life without just getting run over? Yeah, and I, I get a bit tired of people saying, oh, this council perfection is what's killing women, you know, they should just set it aside. I'm like, well, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's actually that. I think it's wanting to do the best by your children and by the people around you. That's that's not perfection that's that's a that's motivation that's a moral driver and you can think of it like this if everyone was doing that the world would be a better place so how is the world a better place if some people stop doing that so that always annoys me (laughs) (laughs) i know we should have just really done a list of things that annoy us yeah yeah but we've only got we've only got an hour haven't we (laughs) <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, n- not, even, not even, but um, uh, uh, but Americans that say herb always springs to my mind <laughs> when I think of what annoys me. I just think, stop it. Oh, I could care less. No, no. Do you know, I keep less. seeing that on telly in like, you know, in scripts written by really distinguished writers. And it says, I could care less. That's how and, the Americans I, do it. It's, le- it's it legitimate. No, sense, it doesn't make Lizzie. sense. I know. I know, darling. But it's how they do it. <laughs> So it in itself is not a mistake. It's the nation that's at fault, not the script. So try and have a drink while you think of that. <laughs> do you know what really annoys me? Trainer socks that don't do their job. I go stay on the foot. Too low. And yeah. Then yeah. And slide down. And you think, guys. You have one job. To stay on my foot. And if they, if they come up too high, you get a grey flaky ankle bulge. 
Okay. So I mean, obviously off. not that I care anymore. <laughs> oh, God, the things I care about anymore could be written in Comic Sans <laughs> on the half a stamp. It's, it's, it's come up on me quite quickly, this just not really caring. I mean, the state in which I leave the house these days is, in fact, you're looking at me now over Zoom. I mean, there's a massive hole in this, which is, you know, rained on, rained on, always rained on, metaphorically or actually rained on. But yes, it's, as you get more grown up, it's true that the, um, the irritation grows, doesn't it? The irritation. Yeah. And but all the these caring cons- lessons. <laughs> yes. You both care less. And also, just you, yes. but you mind. Yeah, the fundamental <laughs> engagement in the world has lessened, but the irritate, the superficial irritations are manifold. I mean, it's a hell of a sort of philosophical state. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just, it just, it just doesn't work at all. What did your husband think of it? Uh, he hasn't read it either. If he can read it and use it as a manual, I'd be delighted. Actually, maybe that's how women should use this book. They should buy it. Yeah. There we go. It's not just a book. It is a manual. Yeah. Instead, of leaving, it, re- instead of leaving it a book open at the sex scenes for inspiration, you just leave it open. <laughs> and then not they going out. It, enjoy it and then pass it on yeah. to their husbands and say, you might want to read oh, this. Here is this survival manual. Oh, my God. It's like 18 months of therapy in one book. This I is how so. I feel. Yeah. Oh, good, 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 good. That's so a bargain. It's an absolute bargain. Um, and, uh, and when's it out? Uh, 14th of October. The 14th of October. Are we having fun yet? Um, we suggest that everybody has a look at this because it is, it's really funny writing, but it's also meaningful writing. So, um, Lucy, thank you so much oh, for coming you. That on. Was lovely. For not killing us. You can't because we're on <laughs> Zoom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nicely played. With your cold. And your load. And, um, and I, I very much hope the next time you have a book out, you will come back and talk to us again. I will, yes, please. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Bye-bye. everybody. Bye, everyone. This podcast was brought to you by Innovo. They are offering listeners £55 off the full kit using the code MIDDLT55. Time to give inner strength a whole new meaning. And stay tuned for some pelvic floor wisdom with psychologist Dr Meg Arrow. So, when is a pelvic floor not a pelvic floor? When it affects your self-esteem, confidence, sex life and self-image. So psychologist Dr Meg Arrell is here to talk about why a malfunctioning pelvic floor can leave us feeling lost and less than. Hi Dr Meg. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me to contribute to your podcast. Well, the fun thing always for us is to talk about the untalked about. So, you know, pelvic floors, I feel like the moment women hear the phrase pelvic floor, they're triggered into some sort of response, whether it's guilt about not doing their exercises, panic about what's happening with their pelvic floor. But don't you think there is some kind of untalked about psychological connection we have with our pelvic floors? About 14 million people will live with some sort of bladder weakness. So it's incredibly common. So actually, even if you don't experience it yourself, um, someone you know is very likely to. And again, that's something to do with how we talk about these sort of health conditions and symptoms in our society. Because if it's that common, what is that barrier against the communication aspect of it? And that's what, from my point of view, psychologically, I think is just so important. I think it's interesting what you said exactly about all those things, like the fact that 50% of the population will go through menopause and yet we never talk about it. It's like this conspiracy of silence around these things as as women that we 
And do you think that it's to do with how we want to present ourselves to the world or how society judges us, therefore, if we are somehow flawed or whatever? Or is it because we are sort of turned off by the idea of kind of physical weakness in some way? What what do you think it is that's causing this conspiracy of silence? So I do think that bodily fluids have an association with our sense of dignity. So if we can't control this very basic aspect of our body, it feels very undignified and we feel almost less human. And that is why it can be so embarrassing and it can be so difficult to talk about. And when we think about incontinence, it's, you know, we think about, okay, so so babies are very old, you know, older people. And we don't think that actually it can be just you know part of so many conditions and so many experiences or people can experience urinary incontinence and not actually know why too but it is to do with that sense of I can't control myself and so not being able to control something physically you feel completely out of control emotionally psychologically and that can have just huge impacts on people's life i work with so many people where the fear of having a leak is actually much worse many times than a leak itself and it stops people from going out it stops people from socializing and then you can become incredibly isolated so it's a vicious circle and we know that social isolation is incredibly bad not just for mental health but for physical health so it really can cause you know a huge amount of problems not just looking at the physical nature of it don't you think that we panic about our vaginas and our vulvas and all our lady parts as soon as we find them you know what do they look like what do other people's look like how are they meant to smell what what do they release what are they meant to release what what they can do what they're supposed to feel like and this just feels like an extension of a really early female panic again having that sort of conspiracy of silence around it is very difficult and it can be very damaging psychologically and of course we do talk about it more now and that you know anatomy is is portrayed more so but in a very sort of perfect way so if you're comparing yourself to perhaps something you've seen and it's not quite like that or the smell is a bit off you can honestly think gosh there must be something dreadfully wrong with me and again it's that sense of self-shame that is so damaging and so what happens what are the psychological responses there's shame and there's secrecy and is is that have you found that that's what what makes these people allow the symptoms to progress and then along with that the shame will progress Definitely. That's one side of it. I think there's another issue that really does sort of hold people back in the sense that it is just normal. You know, it's just part of having kids. It's just part of going through the menopause. It's part of aging. And so thinking, oh, do you know what? I don't want to cause a fuss. I'm not sure if there's anything can be done. And that really holds people back from getting effective treatments. And there are very effective treatments and you absolutely don't have to live with it. So that mindset is something that now we are talking about it more does need to change it's funny isn't it how you know do your pelvic floor exercises rings in our ears constantly and yet 
we seem to almost willfully forget to do them. It's like <laughs> another thing on the to-do list. And yeah. I wonder why we feel so avoidant around it. For people that uh, struggle to engage in pelvic floor exercises, whether that be with Inovo or them just doing them by themselves, it's much harder to prioritize something that is just around what we perceive as being a negative. So having leaks, you know, it's a bit of a negative. Whereas if we do it for a positive reason that it's going to make our orgasms just, you know, amazing, then that motivation is, you know, a little bit easier to sort of harness and use. I think it is yet another thing to do in our very, very busy lives. I think most of us don't really understand how to do the exercises. And of course, we can't see our pelvic floor. And so we're not really sure if we're doing it right. And if you don't think that something's improving, the likelihood of you being able to maintain that health behavior is decreased. Mm. So you do 20 and then you expect to be cured. And then you, you know, if you're not, you get demoralized and you stop. Well, and if you can't see improvement and it does take time, you know. So if you can't really see if it's working, it doesn't really feel like it's working and you're trying to fit it into your day other things will sort of be prioritized over that and in the meantime you're sort of rigid with panic about everything else so yes so so it's like a, a weak pelvic floor becomes just another stick to beat ourselves with i mean how mentally damaging can it be to to let these things progress and just to not do anything about it our feelings about ourselves, our self-identity, that's a very important thing. And not feeling that we have control over our bodies makes us feel just that, you know, we're not good enough. And that's incredibly damaging. Well, so it always seems to happen. I mean, sorry, these sort of transit life, like you said about life transition moments. So already we're worried about, I don't know, being perimenopause or already you've had a baby so you're you know sort of exhausted and and deranged and anxious about keeping another person another creature alive and then on top of it you're like oh and is this happening to me as well and so I think the natural instinct is I mean we're so sold the idea of being kind of super women and that we should just sort of plow on regardless of the fact that bits of our bodies are falling apart are falling off or leaking out of us or you know things are growing in all kinds of strange directions and um and yet and so 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 we don't stop and take care of ourselves but that's exactly why we do need to educate younger women so that when they come to the point that perhaps and actually it's better to start doing pelvic floor exercises before you you really sort of need them per se just waiting until the pelvic floor weekends it's going to be harder and take longer for for um, the pelvic floor to strengthen so we need to talk about it much much earlier so that it's not this extra thing that we need to think about so then it's part of our daily habits it's part of our health behaviors and it's not as overwhelming because we're kind of already doing it and we know about it and it's not yet one you know one more stick to sort of bash ourselves with I um asked a friend of mine the other day who hasn't had a child if she did pelvic floor exercises and she said yes I always have and I have a vagina like a bulldog clip (laughs) (laughs) once you take control of something or at least you you go towards taking control of something it does make you more sort of aware and sensitized and therefore somehow that seems to help the whole process without a shadow of a doubt. So, you know, even just the act of trying, does that make sense? Well, that's that's your famous placebo effect. You could, you know, talk about, you know, is is that emotionally and psychologically, the idea that you're doing something is going to work 
means it starts to work. Absolutely. And in psychology, there's also a concept called locus of control. So our locus of control is about perceived control. And when we research this concept, we look at whether someone has an internal locus of control. So whether you believe that your actions will make a difference to your health outcomes, an external locus of control, which is uh, divided into two, chance and power for others. So chance means that no matter what I do, it's not going to make any difference. So why bother? Powerful others is to do with if you place all your control um, with doctors and other health professionals. And there is just a wealth of research that shows if you have increased internal locus of control, your health outcomes will be better than if you place the control down to chance or with powerful others. And so what I would say is to do with, you know, thinking that our doctors and our healthcare professionals are responsible for our health, we are moving away from that. So that's a very medical model of health and illness. And if we think about a sort of the model I use, which is a biopsychosocial, so the, the biology is of course important, but the psychology, so things about our perceived control, our locus of control are very important, but also the social context is very important. And that's why podcasts like um, this are so important, because if we are taking down taboos, if we are taking down the barriers, that has an active effect on health outcomes, not just psychological outcomes, but physical outcomes, because it enables us to take the steps to improve our health behaviours. So it's incredibly, incredibly important. Mm. Just taking those first steps. But also, yes. yes, exactly. And you feel less alone. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? You just feel less alone. So therefore... Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, a collective effort to um, strengthen our collective pelvic floors to increase our collective power. Exactly. Imagine. I know. The, the mind boggles. The pelvic floor boggles. Everything boggles. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. And uh, see you soon, I hope. Thanks, Meg. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi, my name is Kay Adams and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.